was your first year in club volleyball? Uh, I think I was eight and I was playing on the 12s team. Wow. And Nicklin, how about you? I think I, I was six when I started club and I was <laughs> on the 12s as well. <laughs> Welcome to Inside the Coaching Mind, conversations on leadership coaching and team building. Your host, Terry Pettit, led the University of Nebraska Cornhusker volleyball team from 1977 to 1999 and coached Nebraska's first ever national championship in 1995. Today, Coach Pettit mentors coaches, authors books, and presents to corporations and businesses on leadership and team building. I'm Dave Young, producer of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Terry, this episode of Inside the Coaching Mind is kind of unique. You managed to put together an interview with two setters that have been competing for a long time. Tell me how this came about. Well, Sydney Hilly has been the starting setter for Wisconsin for the last five years. In the last three years, they've been in pursuit of Wisconsin's first national championship. Nicklin Hames has started for the last four years for Nebraska and is, I believe, the best defensive setter I've ever seen in college volleyball. The two did not know each other. They've obviously shaken hands and stared at each other across the net. But I thought it would be kind of fun to bring two great competitors together to talk about the position. And then in the latter half of the um, podcast, we talk about the match itself and things that they were aware of as the match unfolded. And eventually Wisconsin goes on to win 3-2 in a, in a very exciting match, but a very unusual match. I can't wait to, to dig back into this. I'm Terry Pettit, the host of Inside the Coaching Mind, and we have a, a very special show today. Uh, we've got two people that have a lot in common, even though they've never met socially. Uh, both were... Um, top setters for top teams in this year's national championship match. Both have been All-Americans. Both have won multiple state championships. Both were trained early on by their mothers. Both are team captains. Both are looking forward to a future beyond college volleyball, but I think they're headed in different directions. One is going to be a coach and one is going to continue to be a player. So we're really fortunate to have uh, Sydney Hilly from Wisconsin and Nicklin Hames from Nebraska. Welcome, ladies. Thanks for having us. Nicklin, I, I know that your mom was instrumental in your training. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that came about? As long as I can remember, my mom has been a coach. So I've always been in the gym with her and just watched her coach other girls. And then as I got older, she started to coach me a little bit more. And as I grew up and then she was my um, uh, high school coach and to be able to play for her for, I got to play five years of high school. So play for her was really special and to win state championships with her was really special. And I think we have a strong bond now because we were a player and coach at one point. Um, and we just, we really understand each other, even though it wasn't always the nicest, you know, we got on each other's nerves, but um, it's pretty special to be able um, to share that with your mom. And a point of clarification here, you played five years of high school, not because you you <laughs> played your senior year twice, but because you played in eighth grade. And yes. uh, that's pretty cool. Sydney, how about you? Your parents both played volleyball. Your mom played it. Was it South Dakota State or North, North Dakota State? Yeah. North Dakota State. How did how did was she involved in your uh, development. Yeah, well, she was the reason I started playing and the reason I probably stayed playing. Um, but when I first started, she was actually the one to 
tell me to go to club tryouts. And she said that if I made the team, she would buy me a new pair of shoes. And so then I was super excited about it. And um, that's how I got into it right away. Um, But she was my coach when I was pretty young, um, back when I wore like basketball shorts instead of spandex and stuff. So she was never my high school coach, but she's just always been there. And the reason I started playing, but also throughout my career, there's been a lot of times that I wanted to quit. And she was one of the reasons that I never did. And I stuck with it. Um, So I'm really thankful for that. Had she played the center position? She was a right side. Right side. So back when she played, I'm guessing that was the alternate setter. Yeah, she did a little bit of setting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What was your first year in club volleyball? Uh, I think I was eight and I was playing on the 12s team. Wow. And, and Nicklin, how about you? I think I, I was six when I started club and I was <laughs> on the 12s as well. <laughs> what the, do they put helium in the balls to help you get it across the net when you're yeah. six? <laughs> well, it was funny. At that point, I couldn't stand serve. So for some reason, I decided I was going to jump serve. And that was the better alternate to get it over the net. So. I don't know how I did it, but. Wow. Well, you're, you're both, I think, familiar with the phrase lonely practice. That means that a person goes out by themselves. And I, I've read a little bit that you've written on this, Sydney. But talk, um, uh, we'll start with Sid first. Talk about your, you know, what you did initially as a kid uh, to learn volleyball when you were by yourself. Yeah, I was lucky that my parents let me play with a ball in the house. There was a wall in my kitchen that I was able to just hit the ball against, set the ball against. There's tons of marks on it, but, you know, got reps that way. But also I would go to elementary school and think I was super cool in the hallways, practicing my left, right, left approach and just would do stuff like that. But when I got old enough where I could drive, I would just go drive to my club gym. My coach gave me the key to the gym. So just being there all the time, blasting music, um, they built me a little box that I could hit at and it would bounce back to me and I could set. So I didn't need a tosser. So I'd just be in there for hours and hours just doing that. Um, and that was what I did to like relieve stress and just to have fun. So I don't even know how many hours I did that for. Nicklin, how about you? As a kid, I kind of just got dragged around everywhere because both my parents were coaches. So I was always at the gym and I can just remember doing hitting the ball against the wall and seeing how many I could get in a row. And then I just remember like seeing the girl, the older girls do the drills. And then I would just try it on the side by myself to see if I could do it. But then I'm, I'm also really lucky that my parents do own a club and I had the key and I could go whenever. And that made it super easy for me to just head over there whenever and get those reps in. And we know that this works. We know that kids that take responsibility for their own development usually become players But I guess my question for you is, um, can you change a person or can you initiate this to to a person or ask them to do these things? And and what percentage of kids are going to go do it? What percentage of kids are going to go and take responsibility for their own development? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if you can force someone to do it. Um, That was just something that I wanted to do. Like, I fell in love with challenges and just wanting to get better. And I think to take ownership like that, you kind of have to have that drive to want to do it. Right. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think you just have to have that love for the game. I just remember as a kid how much I loved to play like all the time. And so it was all you thought about and all you wanted to do. And 
I don't know if you can tell someone to love the game. I think they have to find that on their own. You both started as freshmen. Uh, this year was uh, Sydney's super senior year that Nicklin, this was your senior year, but you'll be coming back next year. You both followed great players at your position. Uh, Lauren Car- Carlini was certainly uh, a great player and went on to play professionally with the national team. And, and uh, Nicklin, for you, you, you fo- uh, followed uh, Kelly Hunter. She w- led Nebraska to two national championships. I'm sure that that was part, maybe part of the reason that you chose the schools you did, but did it also put added pressure on you stepping into those shoes immediately following um, those two graduating? I think it, it did a, a little bit, just knowing that you were coming in behind two or a great setter. And for me, it was like they had won the national championship the year before. So it was like, okay, if we don't win a national championship this year, then it's kind of like almost a failure of a season. But I think I just kind of had to develop my own confidence in my own game and not try to be Kelly Hunter, but be myself. Um, And I think throughout my freshman year, it took me a while um, to get to that point. Yeah. I mean, like Nicklin said, I, I didn't go in wanting to be Lauren Carlini. I wanted to be Sydney Hilly, but there was so much that I took from her game and that she taught me. And I was fortunate that I graduated high school early for a semester and was able to work with Lauren a couple of times before she left. And I just remember just trying to soak up as much knowledge as I could from her. But I don't think if anything, it was pressure I added to myself. It wasn't like the coaches or my teammates or the fans adding pressure to me. Um, So I was really fortunate that way. Um, They did ask me if I wanted to be number one when I got there. And I said, no, thanks. I'll take a different (laughs) number. (laughs) But um, no, it it turned out really well. And she's she's someone who who wanted the best for the team and was always there when I needed uh, advice about leadership or setting or anything. Right. You've played against each other, I think, at least 10 times. You know, over four years, you played at least couple times during the season then you've played uh, I know you played last year in a, a regional or maybe a, a couple of years ago in a regional championship and you've also played in the national championship uh Nicklin what do you admire about Sid you've watched her I'm sure you've watched her on film what do you think her strengths are what what do you think young setters can can look to that she does really well she obviously she's an amazing setter um so they could take almost everything from her game but from a leadership side, it just seems that she's so calm and just like keeps the unit together. I, I feel like I've always noticed that about you. It's just, you have a very calming presence, but like also you're, you're controlling what's going on out on the court. And I think a lot of young girls could look up to that and how she runs her offense and how she runs her team. I think you always put up hittable balls too, which is very important for hitters and moves it around and very deceptive. So, I mean, I've always watched her and admired uh, what she what she's done. Sid, how about you with Nicklin? Probably the biggest thing I've watched so much on her defense is just because she looks so relaxed, but she's just able to get under everything. Um, so I've definitely watched a lot of that. Um, but also she's just someone who just brings the energy. She's a huge competitor and I think she really gets her team going. She's got that little fire. So those are probably the two biggest things, but also just a great all around setter um, that I've watched a lot of film on too. For either of you, can setters become competitive with each other when they're on the court? Uh, Definitely. definitely (laughs) I mean, you don't want to make that what the whole game is about, but you (laughs) definitely do see like setter attacks happen after each other and stuff like that. But 
you try not to make that the whole the whole game plan. <laughs> have you have either of you ever been in a match where you let that get away from you, where it started to be a little bit too much about the setters? I don't think so for me. No, me neither. I'm I'm not usually one to setter dump a lot, anyways. So I <laughs> I don't know. Do. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you've got uh, Retke and Stivrens, um it wouldn't make sense to to dump too much. But yeah. I, I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking back to the national championship match, maybe one time for each of you that I can remember a dump. Is that accurate? Probably. Yeah, I think I did one from the back row or something, maybe twice. I don't know. That's just never been a huge part of my game because usually I like to get the ball to my hitters, especially when I'm in the plane and I get people to jump with me. That's when I want to set my hitters. So I just something I need to work on. Um, it's definitely being more offensive as I move forward. Nicklin, I do remember, and maybe it was the regional championship against Texas. You had a critical dump. Um, and, and I think it was very similar. You might've come off the net and two shooted the ball over into the court at a, at a critical moment, but neither of you have ever been players that could have dumped nearly, you know, you certainly could have dumped more than you did. What is it that fans and maybe even non-setters. I've always been a fan of setters. I, I consider the other players other players. What is it that they don't understand about the position? I'll give you an example. I can remember early in my career at Nebraska, somebody started complaining about the set. And so I stopped practice and put them in the setter position so that they could find out real quick. But what is it that people don't understand about the position, about how difficult it is to play? One of the things is you can't make everybody happy. Everybody wants to get set all the time, um, but obviously as a setter, you can't you can't do it and you can't distribute everyone equally. But I think another thing is just I don't usually tell my hitters what the offensive game plan is, what plays we're going to be running. So sometimes they'll be like, can I run this play? And I'll have to be like, no, because <laughs> we're doing this and we're attacking this block and I want to get the ball this way. So just stuff like that and just – I don't know. There's a lot of behind the scenes film and studying and reps that go in that a lot of people probably don't even know that we do. That the that the players on your own team don't know that you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like remember we would go through like our own offense like every week just, OK, in this rotation, we're setting this amount to this person. And it's like, OK, we need to change this. And so there's a lot that goes into it. And I don't think they even realize. Sydney, what's your best set? And by that, I mean, what set do you have the most confidence in under under pressure? Um, probably the slide. I think that's probably the set I've set the most in my entire career, probably because I had Dana back there. But it's just something that I go to all the time, no matter where the pass is. I feel really confident in that. Uh huh. And same thing, Nicklin. What's the set you have the most confidence in? This is a tough one for me. Maybe the go, but also I would say I, I did set a lot of slide in my career to yeah, it looked to me like in the in the latter third of your season you were very confident setting the 31 to Caffey. Oh yeah. That just became kind of a go-to uh go-to set later in the season. What what's the most difficult set for you, Nicklin? What what what's the most uh and, and again, everything's relative. You're good at all of them, all of them. But I've never met a setter who didn't have a set they preferred and a set that they were less confident in. What, mm -hmm. what would you say is the most difficult set for you? 
Uh, for me, I would say like off the net back set is I mean, probably my least favorite. Uh huh. So coming, if you got much deeper than the 10 foot line, yeah, you'd maybe go to the pipe or the left side hitter. Mm-hmm. Sydney, how about you? Um, I'd say throughout my career, my least favorite one was setting the go when I was moving backwards. Um, that was something I worked a lot on the latter part of my career. Um, but definitely in the beginning part, that was a set that I rarely went to. Um, but just moving back along the net and pushing it all the way out. And what's the key to making that work? Uh, you got to get you your move- feet there. You got to get your feet there. If you don't get your feet there, it's not going to end up very well at all. So uh, get your feet there so that you can step back into it. Yeah, so you have momentum to get it back out there. Yeah, that's interesting. Both of you have co- – well, every team has coaches on the sidelines now. Chef was on the sideline for Wisconsin and Tyler on the sideline for um, for Nebraska. How often are they suggesting, signaling, giving you information? Yeah, well, Kelly gives me information all the time. Um, a lot of the times we game plan – before but usually he'll only signal a play if we're stuck or if he sees something and he'll just like give me a hand signal like set the go he'll give me that or like in a timeout he'll say like run this play but usually it's me setting and then if he has feedback he'll say this person's hitting 700 feed them the ball something like that Um, but really he gives me a lot of freedom um, to Uh set what I what what I feel and what I can trust. Did that change through your career? I mean, what, when you were a freshman, was there was there much more interaction between Kelly and you? I think during games, it actually got more as I was older. I think he probably didn't want to overwhelm me when I was younger with too much information because I'm someone who can get very analytical and think about things a lot. Um, but as I got older and just played more freely, I was able to take a lot more feedback from him during games. So, yeah, he's always there to give me information when I need it. If I say, hey, what do I need to do in this rotation? He's always there. But he he does a really good job of uh, making me feel like I'm free to run the offense. Nicklin, how about you? Tyler is up and down the sideline. Does he give you information or does it come from the bench? It comes from the bench. Uh, Me and coach talk about it before games as well, just about what the game plan is and then um, during timeouts, if we're stuck in a rotation, he'll call a play and he'll ask me, what do you think we should run in this to get out of this? And so it's a conversation about what we're seeing. And then if he sees anything um, while we're out there, he'll he'll talk to me about it. But um, it's been it's always like a conversation, too, which I think is cool. He's always asked me, like, what are you seeing or stuff like that, which is which is nice. But, yeah, he does. We have some conversations, but um, not a lot of talk usually. Yeah, I think uh, most of my conversations with John, he either says, uh, yep or nope. Um, I don't don't know if that's the case with you. In general, if you set a player and she has an unforced error, let's say she tries to hit high hands and misses, do you go back to her? Do you go somewhere else? Or does it depend on the competition and maybe whether or not you're in endgame? In general, how do you how do you respond to a player uh, making an attack error? Yeah, it's definitely situational. Um, it depends on how you can tell that your hitter's feeling after the error. But also, you don't want to be a setter who never goes back to someone after they make an error because that's something other teams can scout and they'll block differently if they know that you don't repeat. But you also don't want to repeat every time because that's another thing, another tendency they can scout. But 
Um, usually if I see a hitter that's taking a confident swing and barely misses, I like to go back to them. Or if it's a hitter who comes down after an error and says, set me this ball right now, I'm like, all right, here you go. You get another shot at it. So in an end game, it's the same thing. If I still have that trust and I know that they're ready for it, I'll still go back to them even if they just made an error. Same for me, um, especially when they take a great swing and they barely miss. Or I love to go back to hitters too if they like, I think I got a touch on that and they like didn't call it and they're all fired up about it. I like to go back to them because they're they're mad and they're ready to take another big swing. But yeah, and and then in end game, you just just knowing which hitters really want the ball in that situation. And I've been blessed with a bunch of hitters who at the end of the game want to take those big swings. And so knowing I can go to them twice in a row um puts a lot of confidence in me setting. You're both familiar with being in the zone when we talk about being in flow. And it doesn't happen very often, but have you ever been in part of a match or a set or, or maybe even a whole match where you've just felt you're, you haven't been analytical at all? Basically, you've just gone out there and everything is, is as well as it could po- goes as well as it possibly could be for you. Do you recall matches like that? Yeah, um, I I think it's it's hard to get into, obviously, but. I think I remember one game this year is when we played Purdue at home. I don't even remember that match, but I just remember it feeling really good. And just the ball just comes out of your hands different when you're in that state. But you can kind of like black out a little bit and you don't really remember because you're just, you're not thinking about a lot. You're just, you're just setting, you're just competing. Um, And I've struggled with that a lot, just thinking way too much about every single set and trying to be perfect. And so my goal this year was just to be competitive and go after it and then try to get into that flow state. Yeah. Do you, Nicklin, do you do any mental imagery or uh, any work along those lines before matches? Yeah. Um, I do a lot of mindfulness. Um, it kind of helps me during games reset and kind of center back to what I'm doing. Otherwise I start thinking about a lot of things that I can't control and then it kind of spirals down. And so I do a lot of mindfulness and visualization. We usually do visualization before just envisioning how we want the match to go, how I'm going to feel in that moment. And that's helped me a lot to not think about 80 different things and just kind of focus on being out there and competing. Mm-hmm. Sid, same question. Have you been in the zone? Yeah. And I think that as my career went on, I did a lot better at being able to be in that zone a lot more consistently. But when you're in that zone, you're just, you don't play any better than than when you're in that zone. Like you're just feeling it. Everything that comes out of your hands is gold. You feel like you can take a lot of risks just because you have a ton of confidence. But I, I think I just get in that zone when I'm just fearless, having fun and not being scared to make mistakes. I just go out there and I trust in my training. I trust in my, my teammates. And like Nicklin said, it's a lot of mindfulness too. Like right before games, I'll do visualization and just feel and hear and just all the sounds that are going to be in the gym and just get lost in the moment. Um, I had this thing where as soon as I put my Jersey on, I was a new person. I was ready to go out there and just dominate as soon as we came back up from the locker room. So just little things like that really helped me get in that zone more consistently. But not every match obviously goes that way. How do you reboot if you come out and let's say early in a match, and I think this may have happened to both of you in the in the national championship. I think both of you had doubles early in the match. 
what's the first thing that you think of when that happens? You know, when, when you carry the ball. Oh, oops. Like, uh, <laughs> I probably say a foul word in my head, so I'm not going to say that on here, but it's like, oh, and you feel it when it comes out of your hands too. But yeah. how do you, how do you reboot? How do you not let that impact the next play? I always, after like sets like that, I just take a deep breath. And I remind myself that it doesn't have to be perfect. I'm human. It's not going to be perfect all the time. Um, so yeah, I just take a deep breath and I'm like, it's one set out of probably a hundred that I'm going to set in this match. Sid? Yeah, it's, it's kind of the same. You can't let one bad set change your mindset and hurt your confidence. Like, like, like Nicklin said, you probably have what, maybe 10 doubles an entire season. Like you set the ball thousands of times and it's, it's a rare one and it stinks when it happens, but just being able to kind of forget about it and move on and not, not let it affect you. Um, everybody's going to make mistakes in a game and um, you got to be okay with that and just got to be able to move on and say nice things to yourself in your head. You can't tear yourself down after stuff like that. You just got to be like, all right, keep going next ball. You got this. You just got to keep staying positive. And uh, that's how you don't let it affect you after that. In terms of relating to teammates, I'm assuming that you have to relate different to different people. You have to know which ones you can maybe get on a little bit and which ones you have to um, encourage. Uh, How long does it take to learn that skill? Yeah, for me, it's building that relationship outside of volleyball So then having that conversation during a game, like, what do you need me to say to you or what, and understanding what you can say to that person, it helps out because you know them off the court and how they function or, and how they function during the game and they're going to react to something that you say. And I think it's just, you have to play with them for a little bit to really understand and really understand who they are and what they need in that moment. You know, I thought you said something very insightful there about spending time off the court because for either of you, it would have been unusual to maybe go have a cup of coffee with a freshman if they weren't on a team. But but it it might require you to do that to to spend time with somebody that you uh, normally wouldn't in your downtime, so that you develop uh, uh, that type of of relationship. Sid, have you have you have you ever had a situation where? Uh, you went to the coach in a timeout, said, we got to get this person out of the match. (laughs) Um, No, not really. Usually if someone's struggling like that, I'll ask him if he's seeing anything that I can change (laughs) about my setting or like a situation that will be better to put them in. But I've never like lost that much confidence where I've asked them to get a stop. (laughs) Okay. Wisconsin had, um, had been, has been really chasing this national championship the super seniors, at least for for three consecutive years, that certainly can provide motivation. Um, can it wear on you as well? Yeah, I mean, everyone who came to Wisconsin um, during my time, they wanted to be there to make program history, to win the first national championship in program history, and being so close, that definitely can wear on you because you see these seniors 
who put their heart and soul into the program and they leave without accomplishing their biggest goal. And you just feel like the heartbreak for them. And you, you ask yourself what you could have done differently and that stuff can wear on you, but it can also motivate you to be better for the next person so that the people around you can accomplish their dreams. And I was just so thankful for this year because I finally got, well, our program finally got what we've been working so hard for and just to see like even the coaches Kelly on the sideline just sobbing because of how much he put into it 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 makes all the hard stuff worth it definitely yeah Nicklin um I, I thought the the match against Texas was a critical match for a lot of reasons Texas has been a a rival of Nebraska for years Last year when Texas um, won in the uh, regional final, uh, uh, their response was uh, they were euphoric. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen a team celebrate as much as, as they did. So when this came out and it looked like these two teams might meet each other again, I, I knew it was going to be interesting. Texas entered the tournament with the highest attack percentage in the country. And Nebraska, I believe it was around 3.30. Nebraska was was chugging along, along at about 2.20. And so going into it, I'm not sure that many people thought that Nebraska could win that match. But I thought it was one of the most interesting tactical matches that I've seen in, in college volleyball. You, you may not be familiar with the term rope-a-dope, but that was when Muhammad Ali went to Africa and uh, allowed a, a boxer to wear himself out, and Ali won the match. I thought Nebraska's pin hitters were exceptional in that match. They were hitting a lot of balls that appeared to be at about 60% speed on the edges of the block. And so the ball would hit the block and kind of fall down. Of course, that requires precision passing, requires precision setting, and then you have two freshman pin hitters that um, have to perform for a couple hours and do that. So it was a it was a remarkable match. Now was I was I right in what I saw, or was was <laughs> was that the game plan with the pin hitters, or did that just happen? Uh, it kind of just naturally happened. I mean, we we knew they had a big block and we work on that in practice using the block I mean a lot and um, taking the 60% shots but I think it was one of those games where everything kind of just clicked um, for us we had been seeing that in practice but in games it wasn't really translating and that was the first time that it kind of just all came together and we kind of went into it because we were no one was going to believe that we were going to win that game Um, if you would have asked 10 people probably eight out of 10 would have told you that Texas would, would was going to win. Um, and so we, we kind of went into it like at the underdog and with this belief in ourselves that, you know, no one else believes in us. So, you know, let, let's just go out there let's go for it. Um, and I think that's why it ended up working in our favor. And it, it was really special to, to be a part of that. And just the vibe of the whole team was, was really cool. It was just, we, we set up in a scene. It was like one big heart all together. Um, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it it changed your season, Sid. Your uh, your match in the uh, semifinal, you played uh, Louisville, who I thought was just a remarkable team, 
as quick off the floor as any team in the tournament. So what was the what was the game plan against a team you hadn't played against before? I mean, we always want to serve tough, but what did you have to do to try and slow that offense of Louisville's down? Yeah, well, definitely we had to serve tough and um, try to get them out of system because their middles are extremely talented. But even when they're out of system, they are difficult to defend. They have great pin hitters as well. Um, So really, we just tried to play our game and try to use our height to our advantage um, because we kind of had the size advantage against them. Um, But we just wanted to play Badger volleyball. That was the biggest thing and just try to play consistent volleyball. And I think in the long run, it was, it was a great match. It was extremely even, but I think what separated us was just how we played in the red zone, we call it, when it gets really tight in the end of sets. I think that's where we separated ourselves, and that was something that we worked on all year, and it translated in that match, definitely. And I, I thought both teams, both uh, Wisconsin and Nebraska, had the advantage of uh, – Pitt. I thought Pitt was – equally remarkable team and maybe even faster than than uh, Louisville and how fast they were running their go sets but you, you did have one advantage which sometimes doesn't come into play and that's your conference that you you were coming out of a conference that probably for the top seven eight teams was the strongest in the country and you'd face tough serving all year long but I don't know, had you faced, uh, Nicklin, had you faced a team at that level that had run a 6-2 during the season? I don't think so. And with the, the speed, I don't think we had seen that all year. Yeah, I remember I talked with uh, Dave Shondell a little bit before the Final Four, and he said, we had not, you can see it and watch it on video, but until you're out there on the court against it, you really can't appreciate how fast they were uh, running that offense. Tactically, what do you do different against the 6-2 that you might not do against a 5-1? Well, we there's not going to be a setter in the front row. Sometimes if they have a smaller setter, um, you can attack that, but not a lot changes. We kind of just focused on our side offensively, just distribution and making sure we're moving the ball around to everyone. And then obviously um, we wanted to set our middles as much as possible and I think we did that pretty well in that game. Both of you are a little different than what we think of as teams that end up playing for a national championship in terms of your offensive emphasis. In the last several years, the game has shifted so much to left side players. But both of you had very strong medals, medals that were attacking the ball at a much higher percentage than your left side players. Usually for a team to compete for a national championship, you're looking at a left side player who can go on professionally or, you know, maybe play on the U.S. team or internationally. But in this case, both of you were much more successful when you, when your middles were successful, when you could take the ball there. And in Wisconsin's case, you had uh, great success also going to the back row with Demps in the back row. So that was, um, that was unusual. What was different about Wisconsin than when you played them the first two times? As you were scouting and preparing for the national championship match, Nicklin, what adjustments had Wisconsin made that you had to prepare for that weren't there in those first two matches? I think maybe a little bit more back row towards the end. I don't know 
the first time if you guys said a lot about grow I can't really remember I'm sorry um but we kind of just wanted to play better on our side of the net um we hadn't played great uh, Nebraska volleyball and we knew that and so going into it our focus was a lot on our side of the net and just trying to play our game a little bit better a little bit more in those big situations I think what one of the differences one of the things that I've observed about national championship teams is they frequently have a younger player who develops through the season. And and for Nebraska, that would probably be Krause on the right side. And for Wisconsin, Smrek became a dominant attacker in the in certainly in the latter third of the season. As a matter of fact, in the national championship match, I think she had the most kills for Wisconsin. And so um that was the that was the biggest difference I saw in Wisconsin as the season e- evolved. Uh, setting Demps out of the back row as much as you did that they're both playing in the same position in the rotation, so they combined for twenty six kills in a national championship match. And and Sid, had you set Demps that much out of the back row through most of the season? Well, we actually had a different lineup for most of the year. Um, Jade didn't start playing back row for us until probably the last third of the season. And when she first started, that was kind of just uh, like two or three times a match, maybe she would get the ball. But as it was going on, she was converting in huge moments and she made us a lot more difficult to defend, especially when teams wanted to double block or trap block Dana or our slide having her able to run a back row attack either in the middle or kind of shifted towards the left side. It definitely stretched out our offense a lot, but both Anna and Jade um, were two players who didn't have the role that they wanted at the beginning of the season. Um, But they worked their butts off to get into the lineup and to play and we had an injury that brought Anna into the lineup but then she still had to change positions again so it was just a lot of newness um, and it took a while for us to get a connection down and get confidence in that um, but once once she did she she was letting it rip she had no fear and she played incredible in the final four and I think that she could probably go on to be one of the best players to ever play college volleyball and and what did you see in Nebraska as you prepared for that final match what adjustments had they made since the last time that you played them? Well, their serving was extremely tough, probably the best serving team in the country. And we saw that when we played them in the Big Ten Championship. They were just acing us off the court. They were dropping dimes on the end line. So that was one thing that their serving really um, took it to a whole nother level. But also they're the best defensive team in the country. And so we knew that we were going to have to be really patient on offense, that even if you take a really good swing – it might not score. I mean, in the last point of that match, there was like three or four incredible digs that they had, and that was happening all night. So just as a hitter, not letting that wear you down, but being able to take smart swings over and over again and not trying to go for that big kill if it's not there. As a matter of fact, when Nebraska won the fourth set, I believe um, Kena made a tremendous dig on the side of the court, came back and battenhorst uh, got a kill to go to a, a fifth set. I, I think there were maybe only two points that separated the teams during the whole f- five sets. So we go to a fifth set. I'm, I'm curious, did the head coach pull either of you aside and talk with you individually going into the fifth set? 
Uh, coach didn't pull me aside. It was um, kind of just as a team, we were, we were talking mm-hmm. with each other about um, how we wanted this step to go and just firing each other up. Mm-hmm. Sid? Yeah, I don't, I don't think he pulled me aside. <laughs> <laughs> he might have, honestly, it's all kind of a blur. But if I do remember correctly, it was just uh, the game plan was to keep going with what was working and to get the ball to Jade and to Anna as much as possible. <laughs> get the ball to Jade and to Anna. That was, that was a good game plan. It was an exciting fifth set. The whole match was exciting but a little unusual in some ways. Uh, Certainly I've never seen a match, not just a national championship match. I've never seen a a match where one team scored the first seven points. And a lot of things have to happen for that to happen. One uh, very early, maybe the first or second side out for Nebraska, Krause hits a ball that almost looks like it's in. It's, it's, It's ruled out, but if that's the case, then you've got a 1-1 set, and Nebraska rotates. But in those those first seven points, I believe three, three were Wisconsin kills, four were Nebraska errors. And so it looks like Nebraska's, man, that's a lot to come back from against a great team. But actually, Wisconsin goes on and makes five or six unforced errors. And you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking this is primarily because women's volleyball doesn't get in this type of situation very often, where you have two great teams competing at this level, and you're in tough matches. You're in close matches. You're in five-set matches, but you're not very often in a five-set match to win a national championship. And I'm suspecting that that's where the errors are coming from. Most of them were at, were attack errors. There was a couple service errors, but Nebraska right. kind of finds its way back into the match. This is a, a statistic that is kind of interesting. It isn't until the seventeenth point of the of the fifth set that Nebraska has a kill. In other words, all their points are coming off Wisconsin errors. Wisconsin has had some kills. So once the match gets to that point, Nebraska has the next four points Nebraska gets are kills. And so they kind of work their way back into the match. I believe it was 14-12 or 14-11. It looks like Wisconsin has won. Nebraska calls. John puts down the green card. Did either of you going to that huddle have the feeling about for sure whether or not that ball had been touched. For example, in Wisconsin, are you going in and saying, you know what, I might have, this might this might not go our way. Uh, Nebraska, as you go into that huddle, do you know what, do you think that this is just uh, a routine or do you think there actually might be a touch there? I honestly Sid? didn't know. I didn't know. Um, Maddie, no. I think Maddie hit that ball and she was like, no, we got a touch, no, we got a touch. But from my point of view, I was... I didn't know. You didn't know. How about you, Sid? Well, I was blocking. And so I knew that I didn't touch the ball, but I turned to Dana and I said, did you touch it? And she said, no, I don't think so. But I was like, okay. So, but you can't get too excited even if you you, you didn't touch it because you never know. And so we were thinking like, no matter what happens, be ready for the next point. And it was crazy because watching it on TV, like it definitely looks like she touched it. 
Um, but then there's another angle where she posts, I think she posted it on TikTok or something where she didn't touch it. So it was crazy. So a ton of momentum shifted just in that point. And yeah, that was crazy. It was kind of shocking. Um, but it took a second to be like, okay, we're still playing. You didn't win a national championship, get back in the match. So yeah, that was a wild moment for sure. In general, I think uh, having the, the challenges makes the officials more alert. It makes for, for, for better volleyball. But part of me also doesn't like to see that second official go over there for five minutes and, and it destroy the momentum of a match. Frequently, the person comes back and misses a serve after that. You know, I don't know. What's, what are your thoughts on that? Is the, has the challenge made for better volleyball or would you just soon go, go ahead without it? I like it for everything except for touch calls. I think that it's easy to see if a ball's in or out or if there's a center line or footfall, stuff like that. Um, but touch calls, I mean, when I'm watching matches on TV and I'm looking at the replay, I'm like, I have no idea. Like, I feel for these down refs right now because it is so hard to tell. I do like the challenge system, but like seeing what they have in international, like the film quality they have there, that is what we need. Um, but I think it's going to be a, a long time until college volleyball can get that kind of quality. Um, but yeah, touch calls, it's very, very difficult to see on the cameras we have now. Yeah, I would I would agree. Uh, Nicklin, you're nodding your head there. Would... Yeah, I agree. I, I also think there should be like a time limit. If you can't see it within this time, then maybe it's not there. I don't know. I don't know what they're looking at, but if it's like five minutes in and you don't know 100%, I feel like it's hard to make a call at that point. And I would also think as an athlete, you could touch the ball and, you know, you've got adrenaline going, whatever. You could generally think you didn't touch it and have a micro touch or, or et cetera. It was how much more fun was it this year than last year? Uh, not just from the winning standpoint, but just to be playing in an arena full of fans. And, and uh, the volleyball last year was exceptional, but there were no fans there. What kind of difference did that make for you guys? I mean, I think the whole year was really strange. Um, we we wore masks all the time during practices and during games and everything. So you couldn't see your teammates smile or like any of that stuff. And we could only hang out with two people, like two teammates the whole year without our masks on. So whoever you were living with, you were able to hang out with. So that, that was a whole new dynamic because usually you're trying to bond with everybody on the team and get to know each other. Um, but also having an empty field house was pretty crazy because we were so used to just being spoiled with our fans packing the place every night and bringing so much, so much energy. So all the games that we played, we had to bring our own energy and it was definitely more quiet. But yeah, I was really thankful I was able to come back for another year. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to come back um, because I wanted to have a normal last senior year and be able to walk out on senior night and have people in the, in the, the stands. So that, so it was, it was really awesome this year for sure. Good. Yeah, we last year, it was just strange. And the schedule was so different because you had the COVID testing and just the strain of like not knowing if someone was going to pop positive and then everyone has to quarantine and then everyone has to get retested. It just, it, it was, it was really stressful. And then with the, 
like rapid tests that we would do, sometimes people would get a false positive. So then everyone's freaking out and it was just a lot. And you never knew if you were actually going to play your game, but also like with the energy and the, in the fans, we struggled last year at the beginning of matches, we would go down the 06, 07, um, cause we just really didn't have any energy and we were so used to Devaney giving us that energy and not having those fans, it, it made a huge impact on our team. And we had to learn how to bring our own energy, bring, be loud on our own. And, um, I, it was just so nice. I remember I got goosebumps this year when we got to go out for the red, white in front of fans again. Nicklin, uh, you announced your, your father announced first, then you announced that <laughs> you were going to be returning for your super senior season, uh, but playing a different position. Can you talk about that and how this evolved? So I, I want to be a coach after, and I had the option of this year and I've, I've done my time setting. I've set for four years and I've, I've loved it um, here, but if I want to go play overseas, the best option for me would maybe to be a libero or a DS if I wanted to go overseas. And so this year I'm, I'm coming back and I'm just going to help the team in any way that is needed. And if that means I'm on the bench cheering my butt off, then, then I'll be on the bench cheering my butt off. If I get to come in and serve great, but um, I'll be training back row or just wherever they need me. And I'm just excited to be back um, on the team and with these girls and hopefully we can finish strong this year and kind of get the program back um, where it was before. Well, I've, I've given this a lot of thought and I've seen volleyball, college volleyball for 50 years. You are the best defensive setter I've, I've ever seen in college volleyball. Thank you. I can't even tell you who's second, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, you have a, a, you certainly have a tremendous mentality and and make some um, even some of the plays you make at the net where the opponent will serve the ball, clip the top of the net, and you'll respond and and bring it up. That's um, those are pretty remarkable. So I'm sure Nebraska will benefit from having you back in that capacity. Sid, what what are your plans? That's a good question. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure everything out. I'm not trying to close any doors. Um, Still figuring out if I'm going to go overseas in a couple of weeks or if I'm going to wait till next August. It, it happens so fast. Like right when you're done, that's when everything starts happening. And so just trying to find a spot that's going to be right for me and continue my volleyball journey. And then whenever I'm done with that, going to some cancer research is my is my goal. So Wow. The, um, the Pro League uh, Athletes Unlimited has... Have you had contact with them? Yeah, I have. Um, they actually like filled their entire setting position before the college season was even over. So it wasn't really an option for me, but it's, I think it's going to be a really talented group. Um, it's going to be fun to watch. Well, that a door could open there. I think uh, Kelly came in after just a, a couple matches and actually ended up one, being one of the top point getters. So I'm sure you're going to be successful professionally. I'm sure things will go well for you. I want to thank you both for coming. One of the things that I always stressed uh, to our players that you can't really reach your potential without a remarkable opponent. And both of you have benefited in competing against each other over the years. And I think uh, uh, there's a lot of young ladies out there that look up to both of you and will be better volleyball players having seen you play. Thank you very much. 
That's it for this episode of Inside the Coaching Mind with your host, Coach Terry Pettit. Be sure to subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to have you leave a review on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends by tweeting, posting on Facebook, emailing, or just talking about it over a cup of coffee. All the ways to subscribe are posted on terrypettit.com. And don't forget to look for our Facebook group, Inside the Coaching Mind with Terry Pettit. I'm Dave Young. We'll talk to you next time for the next episode of Inside the Coaching Mind.